Hello and welcome to the Journey of Awakening podcast. These are the Neville Goddard Lectures. My name is Lena. I'm a spiritual teacher and I'm a life and manifestation coach. Here on this podcast, I strictly share the teachings of Neville Goddard. If you are interested in actually reading his lectures and are having a difficult time finding them on the internet, um, Neville gave approximately 400 lectures between the years of 1948 and 1972 when he passed away. I do have most of them up on my uh, on my website right now, so just go to lenaktier.com. If you are familiar with Neville's lectures but would like a deeper understanding, uh, or if you um, just need some help with manifesting um, and understanding his lectures, uh, I do offer coaching. Um, again, you can go to lenaktier.com for more information. But today I want to get into Neville's lecture that he gave in 1969, uh, July 14th, as a matter of fact, and it is titled Imagination. So Neville told his audience, tonight's subject is imagination. You read in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, a story of Paul coming through to the Atlantean or the Athenians, coming through to the Athenians, and he calls upon these men, for he saw the inscription over and over. He said, as I passed by, I saw an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. That was the inscription. This, therefore, that you worship as unknown, this I proclaim unto you, is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Acts seventeen twenty three, twenty seven, and 28. The great Blake said it differently. This is what Blake said. All that you behold, though it appears without it is within, in your imagination of which this world of mortality is but a shadow. And that's from Jerusalem. Then he said, Babel mocks. We're all familiar with what Babel represents, the confusion of tongues, no two believing in the same God. Not yet speaking different languages, but speaking one tongue, they have different concepts of the creative power of the universe. And so, he said, Babel mocks, saying, there is no God, nor Son of God, that thou, O human imagination, O divine body, art all a delusion, but I know thee, O Lord. He equates God and his Son with the human imagination, to him and to the speaker. Divine imagination is identical with the word Jesus. So when I think of Jesus, I do not see a being outside of my own wonderful human imagination. Are we not told in Scripture, with God all things are possible? Matthew 19.26 and Mark 10.27 We are also told in Scripture, all things are possible to him who believes. Mark 9.23 That is Scripture now. The power of believing is God himself, so God and man is man's own wonderful human imagination. It's difficult for man to make the adjustment, 
having been trained to turn on the outside to some god that he worships. We go to church, and the mind turns outward to some god, and he paints a word picture of someone before whom we must bend our knee and cross ourselves. But that's not what Scripture really teaches. Scripture teaches that the power that creates the entire universe is not without man, but within man, as man's own wonderful human imagination. That is the creative power of the world. All things exist in the human imagination. So if the word God would turn you out, try to make the adjustment within yourself and begin to believe that the God of Christendom, the Lord Jesus of Christendom, is your own imagination. If all things are possible to God, and God is your imagination, then it should be possible for you. Now I ask the question, I think I have told it simply enough how you can test it, how you can enter into a state. I think I have told it to the satisfaction of most people that we are the operant power. To hear it, to recite it, commit it to memory is not enough. We have to apply it, for we are the operant power. A few days before I closed in Los Angeles, I retired quite early, maybe 9.30 or 10 o'clock and I communed with myself, to whom would I turn? So, I said to myself, I have said everything that I have heard from within myself, everything that I have experienced, concerning the law, I have told. I have told what I have experienced concerning the promise. Could I tell them something more about the law that would make it a little more simple? What can I say that I haven't said? So. I asked the depth of my own being to show me, to show me exactly what I could say that I haven't said. Well, in the wee hours of the morning, a little after four o'clock, as I was coming through from the depths of my own being, here is the experience. I am on a spacecraft headed for the moon. Now it is all in one's imagination, for the dreamer is one's imagination. <clears throat> that is the cause of all. Now, first of all, let me say that everything in this world contains within itself the capacity for symbolic significance. So the moon has within itself the capacity for some symbolic significance. I am headed for the moon. Now you have heard the expression time and time again. Oh, he is reaching for the moon. It could be an ambition based upon your social desire. You want to transcend, transcend the limitation of your world? Where you were born, or it could be some financial ambition. And friends who know your limitations will save you. He is reaching for the moon. Or it could be some tyrant trying to conquer the earth. We have had a Hitler, a Stalin, Alexander the Great, and Napoleon. All these were reaching to conquer the earth, reaching for the moon. Now we are actually on the verge of stepping on the moon. And so we will hit this object in space. But forget that part of it. I am asking for light so that I can throw some light upon the law. How to realize my objective in this world in a more simple way than I have so far succeeded in telling it? And this is the vision. I am on this craft and I am headed for the moon. There are others on the craft with me. Instead of landing on the moon,
I went into the moon through a very, very large tunnel, a tunnel wider than the depth of this of this room. The object is dead, dead as dead can be. I say to someone on the craft, "May I get off?" And he said, "Certainly." I stepped off onto this dead body in space, the moon. There were little objects for sale, objects made on Earth and placed on the moon to sell to tourists. They were cheap, cheap beyond measure, made of clay, little cups, little saucers, little plates, little ornaments. But the cheapest of cheap. You can't conceive anything cheaper in appearance and in quality. There they were, made on Earth to sell on the moon, just like some sideshow at a carnival. I picked them up, examined them, and thought, here, a quarter of a million miles away, man made these things and put them on the moon to sell to tourists. What was the significance of the vision? All of man's ambitions are like clay. They will all turn to dust. A man died here the other day in Texas. <clears throat> He started out as a poor boy and left an estate of five hundred million dollars. <coughs> Excuse me, but he left the estate. He had reached the nice, ripe age of seventy-five, but he left every penny behind. And those who now have billions, they will leave every penny behind them, just as though it is made of dust. Nevertheless, I ask the question of myself in the depth of my own being. Answer. So, what is the significance of the dream? Tell man, not that he shouldn't have what he wants. Certainly, he should have it. It is going to be dropped anyway, but he can get it. So, what other point was driven home to me? This is the point. Instead of landing on the moon, I went into the moon. Blake makes this statement: If the spectator could enter into the images in his imagination, approach them on the fiery chariot of his contemplative thought, if he could make a friend and companion of any of these images in his imagination, well, he emphasized, enter into the image, not to contemplate it as something on the outside. I contemplate now New York City. I am seeing it from San Francisco. If my desire this night is to be in New York City, I say I can't afford the time, or maybe I can't afford it because of lack of funds, or maybe my commitments will tie me here. I don't know. Yet my desire is to be in New York City. I must, if I would realize it, in spirit of the limitations that now surround me—money, lack of time, obligations—call it what you will—I still want to be in New York City. I must enter into the image that is now something on the surface of the mind, out there, three thousand miles away, standing here. I must shut out the belief that I am in San Francisco. Knowing New York City quite well, I would assume I am standing in a most familiar part of New York City, and let it surround me. I must be in it, and then think of San Francisco. I must now see it three thousand miles to the west of me, as I now see New York City three thousand miles to the east of me.
If I go into that state and dwell in it and make it natural, though I remain in it only for a little while, a minute or so, then I open my eyes. I am shocked to find that I am still here. I came back here. I have done it. I have entered into the state of my desire, and I will move across a bridge of incidents, a series of events that will lead me and compel me to take a journey to New York City. Now, this I have used only a spatial or as a spatial example. You can take it in a financial sense, take it in the social world, take it in any way whatsoever. That is what came to me a few days before I closed. For if I could find something more simple to tell them that I think I have told them, this would be it. To enter into the state and not simply think of the state. Thinking from it differs from thinking of it. I must learn to think from it. A man who this night came into a million dollars from that moment, that man is made aware that he has a million dollars. When prior to that, he had nothing. He is thinking from the consciousness of having a million dollars. He is not thinking of it. He is walking in the consciousness of having a million dollars. He's not hoping for it, wishing for it. He is actually in it. That is what the vision revealed to me. Even though at the end of my journey, I will leave my things behind me, and they will all be as though they were made of clay, all cheaply made at that. Every man not knowing this, in fact, how many know it or care to know it? They still want to realize their earthly dreams, and I am all for it. I teach it. But I cannot change the promise. The promise is fixed. That is something that will come to every being in this world, for it has been predetermined. But when we are here in this world of Caesar, I can cushion the blows, the inevitable blows, by learning the technique of law and how to apply it, how to use it. Now the thing I quoted earlier, Blake said in this quote from Jerusalem, Although I behold thee not, well, here it's perfectly true. I do not observe imaginings as I do objects. Imagining is the reality that we name, this power called God. So I don't observe imagining. I observe objects, but I don't observe the power in them. That's the greatest secret in the world. The secret of imagining is the secret of God. Anyone who finds it finds supreme power, supreme wisdom. Supreme delight. Everyone should aspire after this secret and try to unravel it. For whatever you find out about your own wonderful human imagination, you are finding about God. For your imagination and God are one and the same. There is no other God. You imagined yourself into this world and you'll imagine yourself out of it. You came into the world for a purpose and when the purpose is fulfilled, you will detach yourself from it and return to the being that you were prior to your descent into this world. Man is all imagination, and God is man, and exists in us and we in him. The eternal body of man is the imagination, and that is God himself. Blake. Now, I'm not saying it is the easiest thing in the world for you to accept this. It will come to those who have never heard it before as blasphemy. It will come as a shock, an awful shock, 
One man who is trained to believe in an external God to whom he bows, to whom he prays, than to discover that he is not on the outside at all, as we are told in Scripture. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you, and God is Spirit? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Well, if God is Spirit, and His Spirit dwells in you, you can't divide it into different kinds of Spirit. God is Spirit, and His Spirit dwells in me. Now, if His Spirit dwells in me, I try to find out what that Spirit is in me that I can call by another name that is more intimate. Well, I have found it in the Spirit of God, which is God himself in me, is my imagination. And if all things are possible to God, and if I can but believe that they are possible to me, well, then it's entirely up to me to find out how to believe it. I imagine, as do you, we cannot imagine differently. All difference, all difference lies in content. So, my response to the eternal question, who am I, will determine the circumstances of my life. Who am I? Am I the little one that was born on a tiny little unknown island with no social, intellectual, financial background? Must I accept the limitations of birth? Well, most people do. But, I, but have I read scripture? Did I read the words that I am the temple of the living God? And the spirit of that God dwells in me. And all things are possible to that God. Well, I should not allow anything to interfere with my discovery of that spirit in me that is called the spirit of God. For if all things are possible to him and he dwells in me, I must make every effort to locate him. Well, I have located him and he is my imagination. And I do not differ from any person born of woman. The imagination in every one is God. But if they have been trained to believe in their little beings and my own little tiny imagination and my own tiny little imagination, people will say, Oh, that's just imagination. We are going to the moon. A man imagined it a hundred years ago, Jules Verne. He even imagined the nation that would do it. He said the Yankee know-how, their engineers, will contrive the means to get there first. He wrote that a hundred years ago, and no matter how others try, we will get there first. We are on the verge of it, but he had to imagine it first. And there's a transcriber's note here that the moon landing had occurred on July 20th of 1969. What is now true was once only imagined. We are in a room. It seems so real. Well, this was once only imagined. You are wearing dresses. You are wearing all kinds of things. But they had to be imagined first. You go to a tailor or your dressmaker and you pick out the material that you like. It's just a plain piece of cloth. Then you tell your dressmaker. Or I tell my tailor what kind of a suit I want. So I allow him with his know-how, to take my vision of the kind of suit I, that I want. Having picked out the material, he executes it. Now what is then proven when I put it on was first only imagined. A, ma a man imagines a desire, say, for wealth. When he becomes wealthy, he may forget the means by which 
it came about, and think all the external forces that were used to bring it to pa- bring it to pass are the causes. They had to play the part that they played because he imagined what he imagined. So I was a little distracted there because I realized that. So Neville Goddard gave this uh, lecture in July of 1916, July 14th, 1969. And he mentioned, um, and he says right here, we are going to the moon. And then there's a transcriber's note on July 20th, 1969, the moon landing occurred. So not only was it written by Jules Verne, right, that it would happen, uh, but six, what, six days after Neville said it in his, in this lecture, the moon landing occurred. So I just thought that was, uh, I thought that was quite kind of interesting. All right. So let's see. Let me pick up where I left off. <laughs> All right. So, I don't differ in the act of imagining from you or any being in the world. The only difference will have to lie in the context of my imagining. What am I imagining? If I imagine something little and feel sorry for myself, all right, life will prove that I had every reason in the world to feel sorry for myself. Because the blows will come to me, and I will turn to the one who gave the blows and blame him, or blame them, when the blame, if any, as in myself, for had I not imagined what I have imagined, I could not encounter the conditions that I encountered. This is the law of scripture. We are told, don't fool yourselves, be not deceived, God is not mocked. God is your imagination, he is not mocked. As a man sows, so shall he reap. Galatians 6, 7. Well, what am I sowing? I am sowing everything that I am imagining. That is what I am sowing. For the only thing I can sow is what I imagine. So, will I now change from an external God to the internal God and find him in myself as my own wonderful human imagination? Let Babel rant and say there is no God. Let Babel say there is no son of God. Then comes that wonderful statement of the prophet who sees that you, O human imagination, divine body called my human imagination, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ buried in me. And were he not buried in me, I couldn't even breathe. I couldn't think, but one day he will rise in me and he rises in me. Or as he rises in me, I am. I'm he now, but do not know it. When he rises in me, I know it then because I rise. Not he rises. He has become me to the point that we aren't two, we are one. So he suffers us. I say, I am in pain. While his name is I am. That is my imagination. I don't say my body is weeping. I say I am weeping. I don't say my body is tired. I say I am tired. So is not Blake right when he says, Thou sufferest with me? Though I do not behold, I can't quite see you as something external. 
I could not, in eternity, see myself as something external. I must see it only by reflection, and the world undevoutly reflects what I am doing within myself. The day will come; I will actually see myself, but not as something external to myself. I will know myself only by reason of the Son, who stands before me and calls me Father. Then I am looking right into the face of the Son of God, and He will call me Father. Then and only then will I know who I am. Everyone will have that experience. One day you will actually see the Son of God, and this relationship is something so deep and so profound. There is no uncertainty whatsoever in you. When you are confronted, he stands before you, and you see him, and you know he's your son, and he knows you are his father, and there is no uncertainty whatsoever. Only then do you know who you are—that you are God the Father. Everyone one day will have that experience. Everyone, I'm speaking from experience. I'm not theorizing. I'm not speculating. But until that day comes. Let us discover God within ourselves as our own wonderful human imagination, and then test it. For all things are possible to God, and all things are possible to him that believes. Mark nine twenty three. Well, I can believe it, but have I made all things come to pass? It can only be my lack of belief if that statement is true. So how then to believe when reason denies it, when my senses deny it? So reason cannot be the God of whom I speak, for reason will deny it. Doubt cannot be the God of whom I speak, for doubt is called in Scripture the devil, the demon, and he finds rest only in the human imagination, the imagination that will entertain him. That's where he went. If I will have no room in my imagination for doubt, then I am on the road to learning the art of believing. How to believe when reason denies it? When my senses deny it, while、well, entering into the image is the most delightful thing in the world. You can try it tonight when we go into the silence.、You、try it in the simplest little way, putting yourself elsewhere by making elsewhere here, making there here, and then now. And you can do it. It's not difficult if you'll try it. Let me repeat: We are the operant power. Knowing it is one thing and doing it is another. And the minute you try it, you can do it. Well, then wait. The minute you do it and open your eyes and the twinkle of an eye, you're back here, and you will say to yourself, "I didn't do anything. I just did a simple little thing in my imagination. How on earth could that produce a result when I've just assumed that I've done it?" Well, wait and see if a little bridge of incidents does not quickly appear, compelling you to walk across that bridge. Of incidents towards the fulfillment of what you have done, it works that way. And after you have proven it, the whole world can rise in opposition, and it makes no difference to you. You've done it. After you've done it, you keep on doing it and become all the more rooted in who God really is, and you'll walk with your head up, walk as you ought to walk, as one in whom God dwells. <clears throat> There's no place in the world more holy than where you are, for wherever you are, God is there. There's no church built with human hands comparable to the temple of God, and ye are the living God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you.
First Corinthians three sixteen. What temple in this world made with human hands could compare to this temple? When no hand could make it, it comes into the world, and it's a temple of the living God. But again, if this is the first time you've heard a thought of this nature, if it's the first time you've been exposed to it, I'm not telling you it is not a shock, and it's not difficult to accept. It isn't difficult to grasp, but difficult to accept. After the training most of us here have had, I know I had it. I was raised in a very wonderful Christian Orthodox home, where Sunday school was in order, not once a week, but twice a week. Grace at table, mother reading scripture to us, and interpreting scripture based upon her concept, which was a secular concept. To her, the Bible was secular history, things that actually happened in her world. She didn't realize that she, as a world, or as the whole vast world, was mistakenly personified for for persons, and the vehicle that conveys the instruction for the instruction itself and the gross perspective for the ultimate sense intended. But Mother was raised that way, and she made her exit from this world in that belief. So when I was exposed to this at the age of 20 or 22, I just confess I couldn't sleep. It was so completely different that it turned me inside out. I wondered if I'd done the wrong thing to visit this friend. I wondered what on earth have I done. I felt I was a sinful being, even to entertain the thought. I had to wrestle with myself. And finally, when I put it to the test and it proved itself in performance, then I knew that I'd found him. But you can't find him and not share it with others, as told in scripture. So, Philip found him, and he goes and he shares it with Nathaniel. Andrew found him, and he goes and shares it with his brother, Peter. Peter didn't find him. His brother found him and then shared it. See John one forty through 46. So here we find and we share it. I have found him. All I can do is share him in the hope that you will accept him. I know this much. If you believe to the point of acceptance, life will be marvelous for you, perfectly wonderful. For this is the one secret in the world that everyone should aspire to solve, for God is that pure imagining in ourselves. He underlies all of our faculties, including our perception, but he streams into our surface mind, least disguised in the form of productive fancy or fantasy. I sit here and have a daydream. Well, that's God in action. But then someone breaks it and I forget it. I didn't occupy it. I simply had a daydream. But without occupancy. That's one of the greatest fallacies of the world, perpetual construction. It's a daydream, deferred occupancy. I don't occupy it. I don't go in. I possess it and make it mine. If I, in my imagination, could go right in and possess it and make it mine, if I, in my imagination, could go right in and possess it and clothe myself with the feeling of the wish fulfilled, actually clothe myself with it by assuming that it's done now, Until I feel natural in that assumption, and that assumption, though at the moment denied by my senses, if persisted in, will harden into fact. And this was the statement made by Anthony Eden at the Guildhall when he was Prime Minister of England. So this is our great secret concerning imagining. 
If you doubt it tonight, I would only ask you not to deny it to the point of not trying it, but hold it in, obe in obedience and try it now. Just try it, even if you want to disprove it. I tell you, you will not disprove it. You will, in the attempt to disprove it, prove it. And then, slowly, you will come to completely accept it. And then you will walk in the company of God. You won't have to wait for Sunday morning to meet him in a church or any time of day. No matter where you are, you could be standing in a bar enjoying a drink, having fun at a dance, and you are in the company of God. It makes no difference where you are once you know God, and God is your own wonderful human imagination, and you'll become extremely discriminating because you'll know you can't entertain these ideas with complete acceptance of them and not reap them in your world, and who wants to reap the tears forever? So you become even more discriminating. Don't think for one second that you'll live a loose life. No, you'll become a far more wonderful person in this world. You hear a piece of gossip? It doesn't interest you. Today, in the morning paper, many people turned right away to the gossip column columnist and wondered who was living with whom. And they love it. They don't know the people and they will go right out and repeat what this person is paid to print. Because it is like almost peeking through the keyhole of someone else's door. He can't imagine that job. He's paid to be a gossip hound and people read it. Others read only the obituaries to see who's dead. You will not read those pages. You will simply suddenly dwell upon the noble things. Not only for yourself will you do it, your circle will widen. You will. You will think of a friend. And, he, and if he is... Uh, just look. Okay, and if he is distressed, sorry, I lost my place, you represent him to yourself as you would like him to be. If he's unemployed, you, re you represent him to yourself as gainfully employed. If he is earning less than what it really takes to live well in this world with his obligations, you represent him to yourself as living well and earning a decent living and assuming full responsibility of his job, and you push him in your mind's eye. So you widen your circle. It's sort of self-perpetuating. You take in all because eventually all that you behold, though it appears without, it is within, in your imagination, of which this world of mortality is but a shadow. And that's uh, Blake from Jerusalem. So you can't exclude anyone. If you exclude one, it's your own failure. But you don't sit down and work with that one to make it so, you simply assume that it is so. You plan it as lightly as you would if you sowed a field. You don't go out and trample it. You sow the field and it comes up. Well, this is what I mean by imagination. I identify my own wonderful human imagination. When I say I, I'm speaking of all, for everyone imagines. So I identify our imagination with God. That to me is the Lord Jesus. He is buried in us, and one day he will rise in us, not as something external to ourselves, but he will rise in us as us. After we've gone through the furnaces and experience in this world of Caesar. Now there's no room for a final death with Christ and man, for Christ resurrects. You say goodbye to a friend who has gone through the gate we call death, but he cannot die. Nothing dies in this world, for God is a God of the living, but nothing dies. 
Because the immortal you cannot die, or the immortal you cannot die, and the immortal you is far more real than the garment of flesh and blood that it wears in the world of Caesar. This is a limit of contraction for a purpose. But when this is burned in the furnace, cremated you, the occupant are not burned in the furnace. You are restored, clothed as you are now. Only the body is young, not a baby, a young body about twenty. I encounter them all the time, and they are young. Though when I said goodbye through the gate of death, they were seventy or eighty. My father eighty-five. When he said goodbye, my mother sixty-one. I met them in their twenties. I am much, much older. I am. I meet them, and they grow. They grow there too. They don't remain twenty. You grow there, and you are just as afraid as you are here. And you marry there too, and strive there too, and die there too to find yourself restored once more. And the journey continues until you resurrect. Resurrection is a departure from this age into that age called the kingdom of heaven. But only when he in you resurrects as you, you will leave this world of Caesar. But while you are in it, why not learn his law? Because the blows are inevitable. Learn the law, that you may cushion the blows. So when I know what I want in order to cushion the problems of the moment, then I will apply it, and apply this principle towards anything in my world. And the principle is this: first, you start with desire. Who is desiring? Well, I am. Well, who is? I am. That's God. That is my name forever and forever, as we are told in the book of Exodus. Go, tell them I am has sent you. This is my name for all generations, forever and forever. Exodus three fifteen. Therefore, who is feeling? I am. Well, that's God. Who is desiring? I am. Well, that's God. And all things are possible to Him. Mark nine twenty three. All right, start right there. Could I continue desiring if I had it? No, I couldn't. If I wanted this room to lecture in when I came here, and then I got confirmation from the management that I am allowed to speak in the Marines Memorial for ten days, and the dates are set, could I write him a second letter pleading with him? Could I, in any way, hope after I re- had realized it? No, I simply walk in the assumption that I have it. So when I requested that I have this room for ten talks. It was granted, and from then on, I had no more desire for it. The desire was realized. I had to wait the normal time, the time interval of a month. Well, it was a month ago that I accepted it. Then I had to wait, or then I came a month later to fulfill it. Well, the same thing is true in all that you do in this world. You simply dare to assume the feeling of the wish fulfilled until it seems natural. Until it takes on the tones of reality, and when it does, it's done. And now trust God. Well, who is God? Your own wonderful human imagination. Did you imagine it? Well, that's God. Now trust Him. Don't turn to any outside power. The church has just demoted something like a hundred saints after making fortune selling little pictures of them. I wonder how many still wear Saint Nicholas. They treated him as a saint, 
is like treating Santa Claus as a saint. And all these saints, the saint of the road, to protect you against an accident. Now they say he never lived. If he never lived, why did they ever start it? And yet, hundreds of years ago, they started this nonsense. So, unnumbered millions of these little icons, little medals, down south, our cardinal admitted that tens of thousands of these little medals he had put his seal of approval, the seal of the cardinal, on the reverse side of that little medal. When they asked him, well, now, do you regret it? He said, no, it was acceptable then, and I did it in good faith. But whoever started that nonsense started it for a commercial reason. And they made unnumbered millions, hundreds of millions, in selling them to the many. And what number of millions of people wore them and are still wearing them? And he never existed. They mount them on the front of their car and their little trucks on their bikes and now to discover at this late date. I've gone out with these friends of mine to greet their fe- er, to greet three fellows who came back from the war. One was a Marine. He lost one foot and the arm was completely smashed, one arm. His brother was going into the priesthood and he came back down. He was in the army. Another was in the army. He came back with TB. And their, their mother told me in all innocence, and they went along with it, the mother. Were it not for St. Christopher, they would not have returned. She really believed it. And they believe it. And one was three years going for the priesthood when the war broke out. And he thought it better to serve his country than to become a priest. That when he came out, he gave up completely and got married. And he has a nice little family. But he believed it. And they believed it. And the father and the mother believed it. They entertained me very well. But they knew that I was not safe because I was a Protestant. Christian meant nothing to them. Because you either are a Roman Catholic, or you are not a Christian. So I said to my wife, what will they think when they find out that I am not a Roman Catholic? She said, doesn't really matter. They love me dearly, and I am not one. They know you can't be saved anyway, so what? So we all go and have fun. My wife was very, very honest about it, for the simple reason her father was that family's closest friend. And these came back, one with a foot missing, a crushed shoulder. Well, I was in the army too, not as long as these fellows were, but I didn't come back fragmented. I used this principle to get out of the army. And I got out honorably discharged. I didn't run away. The very one who said no to my request was the very colonel who called me nine days later after I began to apply this principle. I did it quite simply. I made up my mind that I wanted to get out of the army. And then I thought, if I were out, where would I be? Well, I wouldn't be here picking up picking up pots and doing all these things in the army, army and being trained. I would be a civilian in New York City in my own apartment with my little girl and my wife. My son was a Marine, and he was already in Guadalcanal. He volunteered with my consent, for he wasn't more than 17 when I gave my permission for him to join the Marines. But having tasted the army life, I wanted no part of it. I was 38, so I simply assumed I was a civilian living in New York City with my wife and my little girl, who was only a few months old. And the same colonel who had disapproved my application called me in and said, Goddard, you still want to get out of the army? I said, yes, sir. And he asked a thousand questions. And to each, I said, yes, sir. 
Then he said, all right, bring me in a new application. And that day I was honorably discharged and on a train headed for the fulfillment of my dream. I simply knew what I wanted. I didn't ask anyone's permission. I went to sleep in the barracks with all the boys all around. I didn't tell them what I was doing. As far as they are, con they were concerned, I was sleeping on that cot. As far as I was concerned, I was sleeping in New York City. I went to bed physically on a cot, but in my imagination, in my own bed in New York City. When I thought of Camp Polk, Louisiana, it was way down south, and I am up here in New York City. And then the same man who disapproved was the one who actually granted me an honorable discharge. I am speaking from experience. I'm not theorizing. I didn't hurt anyone. No one was hurt by my application of God's law. Are we not told, whatever you desire, believe that you have received it and you will? You will read that in the 11th chapter of the book of Mark. Whatever you desire. He didn't say, if it's good for you. He leaves us entirely to make our decision. He actually acquaints us with the law and leaves us to our decision. So, I was left to my decision. I wanted to get out. The colonel could tell me nothing to persuade me to change my opinion. If he had said, no, that was final. I couldn't appeal to some higher echelon. I could take it only to my commanding officer. Well, he was my commanding officer and he disapproved it. Well, I came back. I had the paper in my hand, disapproved. I went to bed without his permission and slept in New York City. I went to bed without anyone in the barracks knowing what I was doing. They saw a man called Noble Goddard sleeping in that bunk, but they didn't know I wasn't there. For where could I be, save imagination? If I am not sleeping here in imagination, I am not here. You see the garment that I am wearing, but you, you would have to find out where I am in imagination to actually know where I am. You can see the garment, but is the garment the man? I was sleeping in imagination, which is God. And all things are possible to him. Well then, he changed the colonel's decision. He changed his mind. Who is he? My imagination. God is one. There aren't a million little gods running around. There's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 Don't look for a second God. There aren't any second gods. And that one God became humanity. And in man, that one God is man's own wonderful human imagination. That one God. So it's the one made up of others. And that is exactly what the word Elohim means. The word translated God in scripture is Elohim. And Elohim is a compound unity. It's a plural word made or one made up of others. We are the others, and all collectively make the one Lord, which is called I Am. Well, don't you know that you are? Don't you say I am? That's God. And can't you imagine? Well, imagining is God in action. So what are you imagining? You determine that. For, as I said earlier, I imagine, as do you. We cannot imagine differently. All differences lie in context. What is my response to the internal question? Who am I? That response determines the conditions of my life. Am I a little unknown being struggling 
for a dollar to pay rent to buy food? Well, all right, that's what will happen to me. And there's no being on the outside to change it. I've got to bring about the change within myself. I can borrow money and beg for money. And if I remain in that little concept of myself, I will be unable to pay back. I will always have to keep looking for someone else to borrow from while I remain in the consciousness of being a little unwanted non-entity. Let me remain at that moment just what I am and change it now. Begin to change my response to the question, who am I? And if God dwells in me, I ought to be important, not against someone else in the world. That doesn't make any difference to me what they are. Grant them exactly what they want. If they want riches, let them. What does it matter? They want to be in the social world at the very top. Let them. No envy whatsoever. If they want to be important in the eyes of the world, let them be important. You have different values. You are in union with God, and God is within you. And what better companion could you have in this world than to walk in the company of God and walk with him? Not only on Sunday morning, but every day of the week, knowing who he is. So we have to make the decision. Choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Will I serve a false god or will I serve the one and only living God? And that one and only living God is your imagination. <coughs> Excuse me, my imagination. And that is the immortal man that cannot die. Now let us go into the silence. And then he says, good. When you completely accept this, you will discover you need no intermediary between yourself and God. None. He became you that you may become God.